This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you said the word Fedian to most people today, that many wouldn't know what you were talking about, and those who did might wonder why you were bringing it up. Yet there was a time in Canadian history when dealing with Fenians was considered the biggest threat to Canada's national security. They were, in fact, the last people, the last organization, not a country, but an organization to invade Canada. Hello, my name's Brian Lilly. This is the Full Comment Podcast. And to celebrate Canada Day, looking at a bit of Canadian history. The Fenians were a group of people around the world connected to Ireland and the cause of Irish nationalism that wanted to fight different battles in the cause of making Ireland a free country. And at one point, some people felt that the best way to do this was to invade and take over Canada. Seems far-fetched now, but that is the true story. But going along with that is the fact that at one time we had a vast network of secret police trying to undermine this effort. That is what the book Canadian Spy Story, Irish Revolutionaries and the Secret Police is all about. It's by David Wilson. He is a professor at the University of Toronto, the Celtic Studies Program at St. Michael's College, and the editor of the Canadian Dictionary of Biographies. Do I have that right, Professor? That's correct. All right. Thanks for the time today. Um, the, uh, the Fenians, we get a brief mention of it in your average elementary school or early high school history course, and it's brushed over in a couple of seconds, but a um, couple of paragraphs, perhaps. But at one point, this this was a very major concern for the government of, of the day, both of as we were coming towards Confederation and in the time shortly after, wasn't it? That's right. Um, and you're quite right about the way the Fenians have been portrayed. Um, Donald Creighton, the historian, uh, described them as a bunch of grandiloquent clowns and vainglorious incompetence. These mad Irish men with this bizarre scheme to liberate Ireland by invading Canada. And the only consequences of their action were the very reverse of their intentions uh, to strengthen the cause of confederation. That, in a nutshell, is the predominant view of the Fenians, and uh, one that I challenge in my book on many fronts, uh, because the, the deeper you look into it, um, and the more you can situate yourself in the context of the time, uh, rather than with the dubious wisdom of hindsight, um, you can understand fully uh, why uh, one group of Fenians, the so-called Senate wing of the Fenians, uh, believed that an invasion of Canada could trigger the liberation of Ireland. Now, they did invade Canada at one point, June 2nd, 1866, 13 months before Confederations declared. But while talks are still going on, um, final points being ironed out about how this would happen, there was the Battle of Ridgeway, sometimes called the Battle of Lyme Ridge. This is Niagara Peninsula outside of Fort Erie. Uh, did they actually invade Canada? Was it an army? What happened in that incident that so few of us know about? 
Yes, it was an attempted invasion of Canada. It was uh, one that was um, undertaken in a, a situation of desperation for the Fenians. They felt if they didn't move then, in June of 1866, uh, support would ebb away. Uh, uh, but John O'Neill, uh, the last-minute commander of uh, this force, uh, took a thousand, somewhere between 800 and 1,000 men into the Niagara Peninsula. And this was supposed to be a feint for the real movement, which was going to come in from uh, Vermont and uh, attack Montreal, which was the key prize. So the idea was to draw uh, Canadian and British troops west uh, to defend uh, the Niagara Peninsula, leaving an opening for a much larger Fenian army uh, to move in to Montreal um, and shut off the Great Lakes system. So this was the, the strategic plan. Uh, now, behind that uh, were several assumptions that I, I think we need to consider to understand why 800 to 1,000 men would have done this and why still more were massed in the, uh, or assembling, I should say, in the Vermont-Quebec border uh, to un- undertake the ma- what was intended to be the major attack. And what you have to understand is the situation in Ireland itself. The Fenians are a, a, a secret society uh, wanting to bring about an independent Ireland through revolutionary means. And they believe that the best chance they have of doing this is when Britain is at war. Uh, The slogan is England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. And they'd pinned all their hopes on France, you know, a war between Britain and France. But France selfishly kept on letting the Irish down by refusing to be drawn into a war. But there was always the possibility that uh, a war between Britain and the United States could be triggered, that you could actually accomplish facts on the ground, so to speak. Relations were already bad in the aftermath of the Civil War uh, when uh, Britain, uh, although formally neutral, had a policy that actually favored the Confederacy, the South. Relations were bad. And a lot of Canadians also favored the South. I think that is uh, another part of our history that many don't know. Uh, many did. Most, most I think, did not. Uh, and if you look at the numbers of Canadians who joined the Civil War, and there were a fair number, uh, the vast majority joined the Union side. Uh, but there was a, there were significant uh, pockets of support for the Confederacy uh, in in Canada. And indeed, if we just move forward for a moment to the origins of the Canadian secret police force, um, it had nothing to do with Athenians. Uh, it had everything to do with uh, attacks uh, being planned, and one was actually undertaken by Southern Confederates uh, into the Northern states. So the secret police force was designed actually to stop Southern Confederates from um, from using Canada as a base uh, to attack the United States. Anyway, uh, going back to the to the Fenian rationale, um, if you had the tacit support of the United States, uh, which they believed they had um, to uh, enter Canada. Uh, If they could hold Canadian territory for a few days, uh, then they believed thousands of Irish Americans, veterans of the Civil War with military experience, would rush to the front, and that the act of holding Canada would simultaneously prompt Britain to send troops across the Atlantic and inspire the revolutionary movement back home in Ireland. A bit of a convoluted route, isn't it? Well, 
Well, yeah, but it, it was. But um, the prospects in Ireland were, for revolution were diminishing rapidly. No war was on the horizon with France. The British government was, was cracking down on the Fenian Brotherhood, uh, had moved against the organization in September of 1865, which is very significant because the Battle of Ridgeway takes place a few months later. And it was convoluted, but I think you can see the logic. Um, if you can draw Britain and the United States into a war, uh, big if, of course, but they believed they could, um, then the ultimate goal could be the absorption of Canada into the American empire of liberty uh, and the liberation of Ireland through revolution. And they did have some precedents for this. I mean, during the Civil War in 1861, uh, there was a crisis brewing between Britain and the United States. I won't go into the details, but uh, Britain actually sent 10,000, 10 to 12,000 troops across the Atlantic in December of 1861, when the Atlantic crossing was not easy. They sent them to New Brunswick to protect Canada against a potential American invasion. And these guys I mean, there was no railway connection between New Brunswick and the St. Lawrence Valley. They trudged through 700 miles of snow to get to <laughs> Quebec City and Montreal. I mean, it was uh, an extraordinary story. So the Fenians knew that when, under when Canada was threatened, Britain would indeed send troops to this country to protect it. And they were also right in their assumption that uh, victories in Canada would inspire revolutionaries in Ireland. In fact, they didn't. The, the Battle of Ridgeway, which the Fenians won, uh, did indeed inspire not just revolutionaries in Ireland, but moderate nationalists in Ireland as well. Uh, their response was ecstatic, actually, to the Fe people who had been criticizing the Fenians a week before, saying that their plan was indeed, as you might say, convoluted, was foolish, was harebrained, were praising it to the sky, praising the Fenians to the skies after they proved that they could beat the Redcoats, who, of course, actually were mainly um, you know, University of Toronto students and uh, the 13th Hamilton militia who had no uh, previous military experience whatsoever. Yeah, there's a, there's a statue that I walk my dog past on a regular basis on the campus of the University of Toronto, that's uh, dedicated to the students uh, from the school who who went and fought and and lost their lives. Um, so, if the Fenians won the Battle of Ridgeway, uh, why didn't the invasion to take over Montreal happen? Why why do we not have a harp on our national flag? <laughs> yes, um, precisely because of poor coordination. In fact, was, there was supposed to be a three-pronged attack on Canada uh, across the Great Lakes coming into Goderich. Uh, that never got off the ground. Um, the troops were slow to come in uh, to Vermont um, and upstate New York. Uh, so there were logistical problems there. They did actually uh, go in, uh, but it was too late. By the time they went in, to Canada, and they, they were actually in the Eastern Townships area for three days uh, before they were pushed back. Uh, perhaps a lesser known part of the story, but a significant one nonetheless. But by the time they crossed over, um, the, uh, the superior forces had pinned back uh, the Fenians in the Niagara Peninsula. And actually the leader, John O'Neill, who was in constant communication with the Fenians back in Buffalo, um, heard that the uh, attack 
in Quebec hadn't yet materialized from into Quebec hadn't yet materialized. And he was faced with a choice, you know, um, do we pull back? Do we retreat? Um, or do we keep fighting knowing we're going to lose, even though the, there's, there's no coordinated troop movement to our east? And in the end, he decided to pull back. And a key factor here was the United States, which had indeed led the Fenians to believe that they be that if they succeeded, uh, they, the American government would quote accomplish acknowledged acknowledged facts. The American government had no intention whatsoever of doing that. Uh, the American government ar- uh, arrested the Fenians when they returned, uh, and also made damn sure that uh, the other Irish Americans who were already heading to the frontier uh, to support them. Uh, would not be allowed to cross into Canada. Uh, there were you, you mentioned Buffalo, and it's you know for those of us who've lived along the border, and most of us live not far from the American border. That's the way our our population is. You you don't think of your neighbors in Vermont attacking the eastern townships. You don't think of people in Buff, you know, troops rallying in Buffalo to come across in an invading army, and yet that was quite the threat that the, the McDonald government and and others had to deal with. Yeah, that's you no. Know, you're quite right. I mean, it, it takes an exercise of significant imagination, even more so when you go to the small and sleepy towns in upstate New York and in Vermont, uh, where the, there was an arms buildup and where there were virulent speeches against uh, against Canada and, and Canada and Britain were regarded as synonymous, uh, basically, by the Fenians. They, they did not they did not distinguish between the two. The Union Jack flew here. That was enough, you know. Um, but it is it, it is quite uh, quite something to to put yourself back into that context. And indeed, the the Canadian authorities uh, took the Fenians very seriously, indeed, um, and not just the Fenians in the United States, but also the Fenians within Canada. And that's a, a, a large part of the story that historians have never really told. I mean, they've never, historians have generally neglected the Secret Service, which I think is an absolutely fascinating story. And they've generally neglected the, uh, the importance of the Fenian Brotherhood within Canada. They, they, they were dismissed as a, you know, a few hundred restless individuals, rootless and restless individuals. Um, they were much more serious than that, uh, not because they were um, strong enough in themselves to, um, uh, to affect uh, a revolution in Canada. They certainly were not. Not that they were a majority of Irish Catholics in Canada, because they certainly were not. Uh, but they were a significant minority. And uh, the most radical elements uh, within uh, the Fenian Brotherhood um, had plans to, well, they had their own secret service. The Fenians had their own secret service. They sent sleeper agents into Canada to uh, liaise with uh, the Fenians here. Um, and there were all kinds of plans to destroy the Welland Canal, um, to uh, disrupt communications, to raise more recruits, to basically to synchronize the invasion with domestic disruption. Uh, there were plans to cut telegraph wires, blow up bridges, uh, burn down buildings, suborn Irish soldiers in British regiments, uh, spike guns, and take people like John A. Macdonald and Thomas Darcy McGee hostage. Uh, by themselves, they could not have done it. But in conjunction with a successful uh, Fenian invasion, 
who knows what would have happened? And and John A. Macdonald and Darcy McGee in particular were were highly conscious of this. And the interesting thing is, whereas Thomas Darcy McGee made no bones about it, he 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 highlighted the Fenian threat uh, and its dangers. Macdonald, who was a much shrewder politician, uh, said as little about it as possible, which is really interesting. He deliberately downplayed the threat. And actually, my, uh, my book uh, begins with several quotations, um, one of which is from Macdonald to that effect. Um, the Fenian organization, he wrote in 1868, after the Battle of Ridgeway, when you think it would have been defeated, uh, the Fenian organization has gone to a very large and dangerous extent in Canada, although I said as little about it as possible. So well, it, interesting it, it, that he would take that position. And you've also got the quote from Thomas Darcy McGee, who, I, I believe our only political assassination in Canada. Um, in, in Depending on the view of history, the official story is he was assassinated by uh, a Fenian sympathizer, uh, Patrick Whalen. Some dispute that, but that is, you know, he, Patrick Whalen hung for that. But Thomas Darcy McGee, just months after the Battle of Ridgeway and after the, you know, failed attempt to take the eastern townships, he said, Canada and British America have never known an enemy so subtle, so irrational, so hard to trace and therefore so difficult to combat. So th th this was, uh, they viewed the Fenian Brotherhood as an enemy that was often hiding when it was in Canada. I mean, the, in, in America, they would be very upfront, but in Canada, it'd be underground, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the Canadian spy story that I tell is one of double deception. I mean, there are Fenians in Canada uh, who are pretending they are not Fenians, and there are secret police who are pretending that they are not secret police. Uh, there's a, a, a plethora of code names and pseudonyms going on. Um, yeah, um, this is this is actually one of the most interesting aspects of the research to try and identify uh, Fenians in Canada. And you find, especially when you look at some of the records in the United States that are extant, um, you find cases of People such as Francis Bernard McNamee, who was a contractor in Montreal, uh, who actually brought Fenianism into Montreal and actually planned to uh, set up an, a revolutionary Irish militia that would join uh, American Irish-American invading forces. And he portrays himself uh, in the press as being, you know, a butter-wouldn't-melt-in-my-mouth Canadian loyalist. Uh, quite the contrary. And, and also, this is so actually, so in public, you you know, singing "God Save the uh, the, the Queen," oh, yes. <laughs> and in private, um, that's right. You know, uh, singing Fenian songs in the pub. That's right. With the result that some people thought he was a double agent, which 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 I have no evidence for, but but he might well have been. Uh, so I think this is a, a a very very interesting part of the story. So, well, then let's get into the the secret police because that is a large part of your book. It's, it's the majority of it. it. It's it's the story I didn't know, and and so tell me about someone like uh, Cornelius O'Sullivan. <laughs> yes, yes, um, Cornelius O'Sullivan. Um, was a cattle dealer from Missouri mm -hmm. um, who uh, 
who managed, uh, who joined the Fenians. Um, he, uh, he, he was part of a Fenian circle or cell. Um, and through that, uh, he went to New York and met uh, William Roberts, who was the president of the Fenian Brotherhood, uh, the, the man, the, the, the architect behind uh, the invasion plans. And this was after Ridgeway. The Fenians are, are now regrouping and planning a second invasion, which they did indeed attempt in 1870. So it's now 1867, and Cornelius O'Sullivan goes to New York, and uh, he meets William Roberts, uh, has a good conversation with him about the state of the Fenian Brotherhood, their prospects for success, their financial difficulties. Um, he's taken to Brooklyn to see where the Fenian uniforms are being made, and he admires the Fenian uniforms and you know, thinks that he, he, might, he might buy one for himself. Um, he buys some Fenian bonds, that's to give money to the cause. Uh, he hangs out with some of the veterans of Ridgeway. Uh, they go to stage plays in New York together. They go drinking together. Uh, they're having a grand time all together. Um, he he uh, returns to New York with a pony uh, for William Roberts's 11-year-old son. Uh, he goes to mass with, uh, uh, with Mrs. Roberts when William Roberts is away and has Sunday dinner afterwards. I mean, he, he's right there is Cornelius O'Sullivan. Um, and, um, he's also featured in the Irish American newspaper, which is a, a pro invasion paper as a model Fenian. Uh, and he's presented with a Fenian uniform that he so admires for his services. But what nobody knows about Cornelius Sullivan is that he does not actually exist as Cornelius Sullivan. His real name is Charles Clark. He is an Irish-speaking orange man uh, who converted to Protestantism uh, from Catholicism during the famine, who joined the Orange Order, who lived in Missouri, who'd become part of the Toronto regular police force, was fired in a sex scandal. It would not be his last. Uh, and who joined, who was snapped up by the secret police because he knew his way around Catholic religious ceremonies, uh, he knew the language, so you know, most almost hardly any Protestants knew the Irish language. Some did, but most did not. Um, so he so was a perfect candidate. Let, let, uh, let's pause and, and maybe explain for a minute for for people that forget. Yes, Orangeman. That's a that's also a, a really good question, and thanks for pulling me up on that. It's a question no one in Canada would ever have asked a century ago. One in every three adult male Protestants was a member of the Orange Order. The biggest event, and in fact the, the most important Irish event in Canada for many years, for decades, uh, was not St. Patrick's Day. It was July the 12th, the day that the Orange Men celebrated. Who were the Orange Men? They were originally Irish Protestants, militant Irish Protestants, from the, who uh, were involved in sectarian battles with Catholics in Ireland uh, in the 1790s, goes back to 1795, and the Battle of the Diamond. And they were ultra-Protestant. Uh, they were ultra-loyal, hyper-loyal, um, you, you could say. Um, and they became enormously influential and actually much more complex than that, that initial uh, description 
uh, would indicate. There are they become they be, there will become many layers to the uh, orange order. John A. Macdonald himself joined the Orange Order, but that did not stop him from working closely with Catholic bishops to get out the vote mm-hmm. for the Conservative Party. Uh, but the, the Orange Order was was massively important in Canada uh, <coughs> at that time. Look, in 1921, fast forward a bit, uh, they were so powerful, they were planning to buy Casaloma. I mean, they, they could bring out 15,000 people every July 12th onto the streets of Toronto with thousands more, thousands more watching and celebrating the parade. And right up to the 1950s in this city, in Toronto, workers for City Hall got the day off with pay to attend the Orange Parade. Wow. It would only change when Nathan Phillips uh, broke the uh, orange stranglehold on this city when he became mayor, uh, the first Jewish mayor in Toronto's history. Let's pause there for a moment and we'll take a quick break. Uh, when I come back, I do want to ask you more about the secret police because Cornelius O'Sullivan was one of many. Um, but also, it, 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 I think a lot of people wouldn't realize that what we're talking about may sound like Irish history or Irish politics in Canada, but was very much local because of what you just described. And we'll get into that. When we come back, Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Cornelius O'Sullivan, a a secret police agent, a a Catholic convert to Protestantism who joined the Orange Order and was infiltrating Fenian causes. It's a fascinating story, and he was one of many. And and in the book, you're describing how uh, at one point everybody had secret police sources trying to infiltrate this group because it was a concern for the Canadians, it was a concern for the British, it was a concern for the Americans. But as I said just before the break, it it may sound like it we're, we're talking about a foreign story, but to the people of the time, uh, Montreal was a very big Irish city. Uh, Toronto was one of the most. I, I think it was had more Irish immigrants, both orange and green, uh, than than Boston. Um, it, it, this was massive local politics. This wasn't foreign politics. This was local politics, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really both. Uh, and that's one of the things that I argue. You you have to look at the transatlantic context and you also have to look at specific localities because they interact with each other all the time. You know, things that happen in Ireland uh, deeply affect uh, what's going on at the local level um, in Canada. So that's, that's also part of the story. It's really um, a quadrilateral story with Britain, Ireland, the United States and Canada. Uh, but within that, uh, the local variations in Canada are extremely important. Absolutely. Uh, 
You know, so for example, you get um, you get Catholic communities in rural areas. You know, not not many people will know Aberfoyle um, near Guelph, but that was a that was um, you know a, a Fenian stronghold, largely thanks to the efforts of one person who organized the Fenian Brotherhood uh, there. Um, and you know, you find uh, Fenians in among the canal workers uh, in. Irish canal workers um, in in the Welland Canal in the Niagara Peninsula, um, you find them. This is a this is a, a culture in Canada as elsewhere that's centered on taverns, definitely taverns rather than churches, social clubs, informal social clubs, um, and uh, it it's operating under the surface, which makes it so hard to get at. I come back to that Darcy McGee quotation about the subtlety of the Fenians. They can't advertise themselves as Fenians, so they they um, call themselves Hibernian Benevolent Societies. And there's a whole web of, of Hibernian Benevolent Societies. And to complicate the matter still further, not all Hibernians are Fenians. These are f- classic front organizations within which the Fenian Brotherhood can can operate. I, I, I may have had some relatives in the Hibernian Brotherhood in in Glasgow <laughs> right. um, years ago, and um, they they would um, famous tales of one of them losing a shoe in a drum as the Orange Parade went through the Gorbals. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, ah, the Gorbals. All right, the, the site of the Glasgow kiss. Yes. All right, <laughs> I did not know that was part of your heritage. Your 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 ancestor would more likely. Excuse me. More likely, have been a member of the um, ancient order of Hibernians. Yes, that, so, that would be it. Yes, yeah. different organization altogether. Uh, but 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 what's what's really interesting here from the and this is actually what got me into the book. Um, it it was that here we have a revolutionary underground movement within an English speaking Catholic community that is a minority community in Canada and is outside the mainstream. So you have a revolutionary minority within um, a suspected um, uh, ethnic group, ethno-religious group. And so the question for the authorities becomes, how do we isolate, marginalize, and defeat the revolutionary minority without alienating members of the larger ethno-religious community to which they belong. That was a key question. And um, as I think you'll see straight away, there are modern resonances to this question. So what I wanted to, what I wanted to get at was uh, the relationship between state security and civil liberty and how, that, uh, and how that played out. And that took me into the world of, um, of the secret police of the suspension of habeas corpus, of the interception of mail, that kind of thing, uh, and uh, and then and then the story kind of took over, Brian. You know, I became somewhat seduced by the story because I kept encountering such astonishing characters and a whole series of, um, of vignettes that connected to the whole, but that were fascinating in and of themselves. So it's not simply. Uh, a local level you have to look at is the personalities in that local level. At one point you tell the story of Cornelius O'Sullivan, really Charles Clark, who's the Canadian embedded in with the Fenians in New York. 
and he's dealing with people, some of whom are real Fenians, but there's also several of them are double agents for different people. And so they're all reporting back to somebody else of what's going on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, there, are, there are different sources of intelligence uh, uh, operating against the Fenians. The, the Canadian Secret Police Force is the, force is the main one, but, there, but the Nova Scotia-born Edward Archibald, um, who was a British consul in New York, uh, ran a, a, an intelligence network out of the consulate um, and was inundated with, uh, with would-be informers, most of whom had no information of value but wanted some money, <laughs> and he didn't buy any of that. And then you had the uh, I do I, I do appreciate their their, um, their their entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, right. But they fooled they they did not fool Gilbert McMicken, the Canadian spy master. They did not fool Edward Archibald. But these these spy masters had a very difficult task on their hand uh, on their hands because uh, they were being inundated. With information and people, you know, knocking on their doors, uh, uh, wanting money for information, and they realized that that most of it was just garbage. But they were really afraid of letting a key one slip through, you know. But they did not want to reject someone who had really valuable information. And um, one of the striking things about the secret police is. Uh, that they they weren't actually a vast network of detectives. They were they were a very small group. Quality was more important than quantity, um, and the idea was to infiltrate the top of the Brotherhood. That was the key, and this is what Charles Clark did uh, in 1867 under the name of Cornelius O'Sullivan. The trouble is, and I'll return to the others in a moment. Uh, but the trouble with Charles Clark. Uh, was that everywhere he went, uh, he betrayed not only the Fenians with whom he was working, but also, it seems, just about every woman he met. And in New York, while his wife Anne is lying ill in bed in Toronto, um, he starts an affair with uh, one of his niece's friends. And uh, we don't know anything about her, really, except for two things. One is her um, her name, which you th- you'll think I'm making up, but I'm not. It's Miss Clap, <laughs> and the other thing, yeah, I know you wouldn't get uh, a date I, today with that name. <laughs> you would not. Um, and uh, the other thing is that uh, he either and or really got her pregnant, promised her marriage, and then abandoned her. And when um, when Clark's niece found out what had happened. She told him how she could get in touch with Charles Clark, uh, contact the postmaster um, at, at Welland, I think it was, and the postmaster <laughs> wrote back to to to, to Miss Clapp said, "Oh yeah, I know Charles Clark. He's a secret policeman." <laughs> <laughs> John A. Macdonald and Gilbert McMicken were apoplectic. You can see it in their correspondence, uh, calling the postmaster an old goon, and they were furious because. All this work that they that they'd put in, all the efforts they'd made to get this guy to the, the top, just exploded. Fortunately for Clark, he wasn't in New York when this happened. Otherwise, he would have had a bullet through the back of his head. Now, the same time he'd brought in other detectives to the Fenian Brotherhood uh, under the guise that you know they were good, solid Fenians, and um, 
And now they were under suspicion. And one of them, uh, not knowing what had happened in New York, shows up at this Fenian convention um, and uh, and says, oh, you know, uh, I'm okay. I'm a good friend of uh, Cornelius O'Sullivan. And they run him out of town. You know, he's, he's, he's lucky to escape with his life. But this other one, William, William Montgomery is, well, actually, yeah, William uh, Montgomery is his name. He goes under William McMichael. And... Um, he, st- he sticks it out in New York, and his response when when he's challenged is, that bastard O'Sullivan, he fooled me just as he fooled you. And he stays where he is, even though he's a subject of threats. He's told on one occasion, someone around here is going to smell the whiff of grape shot when they least expect it. And he still stays, and for about a year, they, they don't let him near anything that's secret. But gradually, he uh, gets back in their good graces. And believe it or not, uh, and this is actually on the cover of my book, in 1868, so two years after the Battle of Ridgeway, there's a big parade in Philadelphia celebrating the battle, and the flag that was carried in to Canada uh, is carried in the parade. Who is carrying it? William Montgomery, Canadian secret policeman. <laughs> that is a great story, uh, David. It, it's wonderful. You, you said that there are similarities to current day affairs and you know this happening for ethnic uh and and religious minority groups isn't new uh to canada it's not new for muslim canadians now where you've got people on different sides and and um in in different views and it wasn't different for the irish but it, it didn't end back in the 1860s for the irish i remember uh being at events where T-shirts were sold for uh, here in Toronto, there were a group of executives, including a Canadian, arrested in the United States in the 1990s for um, uh, trying to buy arms. I think it was in Arizona, and and yep, that's correct. and they they were uh, arrested. They were tried, um, it, but suddenly in pubs in Toronto, you've got T-shirts being sold, uh, free the Tucson Six or whatever. I forget what they had dubbed them. Uh, spoke to one of the lawyers, the Canadian lawyers who uh, prosecuted him, son of Irish immigrants. So it's it's was happening then. It didn't stop in the 1860s that both sides of the Irish community were on different sides of this battle for Irish independence back home. It's it's fascinating. I agree. It's fascinating, and I actually refer to that case in uh, the penultimate chapter of my book uh, um, to to indicate exactly what you're saying that this doesn't cease in the 1860s. And you find, and I had a very interesting interview with a CSIS agent who asked me uh, to keep his not to use his name, so I didn't do that. Uh, but he was he was telling me about the techniques they were using. Uh, to uh, track the IRA supporters. He was telling me about the pubs in which uh, they would uh, take uh, you know, uh, fugitives, basically, uh, IRA um, uh, terrorists on the run. Uh, they, they would uh, do that. Um, also, uh, money raising, uh, not just for the Tucson Six or whatever it was. I, I don't remember the, the the exact phrase for that. But they were they were raising money for the IRA. Um, they were also uh, sending detonators uh, to the IRA. And the CSIS agent was telling me that um, there was a um, a place east of Toronto 
uh, where it had connections with uh, Northern Ontario mining uh, activities, and uh, they would uh, get detonators that had been used in the mines and uh, were sending them uh, for uh, bombs to be made in Ireland. And uh, CSIS got hold of this and intercepted the detonators and neutralized them and then put them back in the package and uh, sent them on, which is very interesting story at the same time uh, and i you know talk about freedom of information requests that that's been in the news recently mm-hmm. and and so it so so it should be i mean i i i thought it'd be very interesting to learn more about this and to you know see what kind of intelligence operations were going on in the 1960s well basically 70s and 80s and 90s uh, against not only ira supporters but also uh, Ulster Loyalist uh, supporters. I mean, there were, there were Ulster Defence Association and Ulster Volunteer Force organisations here in Toronto as well. And they were doing the same kind of thing. You know, they were uh, sending arms and uh, money uh, to uh, the Loyalists back in Ireland. So I thought it would be very interesting to learn more about this and see what kind of intelligence operations were being used uh, beyond and over, over and above the... Uh, um, the information I received from the CSIS agent, and I'm still waiting. Right. I'm still waiting, and I, every every few months I get a very nice letter telling me that you know uh, uh, your request is still being considered. Please be patient. <laughs> hey, I, I, I'm not shocked at all because I've been fighting the access to information system for more than a decade, and it, it hasn't improved under regardless of who's in power. Uh, you, you mentioned um, the efforts. I. You know, I, I, when I was trying to find the the name of that group because uh, it was happened pre internet days, I found all kinds of headlines, including 1982 in the New York Times, where uh, you know to to relate it back to that battle we started talking about, um, it, it was people trying to go across from Canada into Buffalo in order to buy arms for the IRA and yeah, send back yes. uh, that Buffalo connection, uh, very much still there so it, it, yeah. it's fascinating history and, and and fascinating uh part of uh how this country came to be it, it is and also it's it's part of a much longer process than i initially realized when i began the research it actually you can take it right back to 1775 <laughs> during <laughs> just before the uh, declaration of independence uh, when uh, uh and an Irish American general attacks Quebec City and is immediately regarded as a hero uh, by the Irish communities in the states. Well, then still the thirteen colonies, um, and uh, he would have his name was Richard Montgomery, and he would have you know, the Fenian cells would later name themselves the Montgomery cells. War of eighteen twelve, the same thing. You know, uh, uh, Irish revolutionaries from the seventeen ninety eight rising joined with the Americans to get revenge on the British Empire. 1848, during the revolutions in Europe, uh, there was another attempt to um, uh, to launch an attack in Canada to aid and abet a rising in Ireland. 1860s, as we know, but you can take it up also to the uh, period of the Irish Revolution uh, between well, the Easter Rising of 1916 and the uh, Irish Revolution of 1919 to 21. Uh, secret police, we, there are really good secret police reports that you can get uh, on the monitoring of Irish revolutionary movements in Montreal. And Montreal was a Fenian centre in the 1860s. 
and it was a an Irish revolutionary center in the 1920s. Only now the 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 uh, guns were being brought across the border uh, by car rather than by horse. But the same places, the same patterns, and in and in one case, the same person, a Fenian I tracked down from uh, the 1860s, who was still gun running in 1920. <laughs> Oh, it's an amazing story, and, and and thanks for telling it, David. Thank you very much for uh, for the book and for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Pick up David's book. Um, find it where you can. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name is Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, listen through Alexa-enabled devices, Help us out. Leave us a review. Share this on social media. Tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Brian Lilly. Mm-hmm.